Happy May Day. You are listening to Time to Say Goodbye. Um, it is also the first day, Tammy, I don't know if you know this, it's the first day of Asian American Heritage Month or AAPI Heritage Month. I'm Asian not sure American what it is. Asian American Pacific Islander Hawaiian Native Month or whatever. Is that what it is? <laughs> I don't know. It's gotten really long. Yeah, I think it's something like that. Was this a thing when we were growing up? Like, I don't remember Asian American Heritage Month until literally like three years ago. And the only reason why <laughs> I know about it is because like, this is the month where I think every Asian person who has a byline gets asked to go speak at some event, you know, because like <laughs> some, some ERG group at some company will be like, oh, it's Asian History Month. We have some Asians. Why don't we like, invite someone to speak? And then they Google like Asian writer. Right. And then sometimes I guess a couple of years ago, my name started popping up in the Google results. And they're like, oh, May is Asian Heritage Month. And I was like, what is Asian Heritage? I had never heard of this growing up. I think it was when we were in college, maybe. Oh, I don't remember it growing created? up either. I don't know. Is that possible? I don't know. We that's when I think I this. first saw it. Okay. Do you want me to Google it or not? Sure. Okay. Actually, I'm not going to forget it. But like, <laughs> Um, yeah, it's Asian History Month. It is also Jewish Heritage Month, as my friend texted me earlier today. Yeah, yeah. They have was, that? Yeah, yeah. They've got <laughs> <laughs> my friend who is Jewish texted me. He's like, it's our month. And I was like, wait, it's my month too. <laughs> he was like, wait, why do we have the same month? Of course we have to share. <laughs> <laughs> we have to share. We have to share May of all months, you know? What a ter- like, I don't know. May just seems like a bad it's it's like one of the lesser months i think right it's not like october or something i do think always i always i, I am certainly not the first or last person to point this out but black history month being the shortest month is you know quite it's ironic true. yeah these things are too on the nose we got it did you um so did you ever do one of these speeches and what did you talk about <laughs> i did i just like talked about a chapter of my book which was pretty simple and I think it was like appropriate in a lot of ways. Which chapter did you do? I talked about how Flushing was built. Um, oh like yeah, the Asian. That's a good one. Portion of Flushing was built, and um, it was totally fine. And they asked very nice questions, uh, but I don't know. I this year uh, the well has been dry. <laughs> I've gotten no Asian. <laughs> I've gotten no Asian Asian month uh, speaking requests of you. I, I also have not. I've never done anything like that. Oh, okay. Before. Well, listen, so. it's it's pretty easy. It's really, it's it's yeah, usually people. very Give pleasant. <laughs> like it's never like bad, and I never feel bad after doing it. I'm always just like, well, that was totally fine, and I'm glad I got to talk to some people. So, um, anyway, I would recommend it. All right, let's get started <laughs> with the show. Um, I, they have this new feature on the program that we use to record the show, and I hope it works. But I'm going to play it right now, Tammy. I want your gut reaction. A long, long time ago, I can still remember how the music used to make me smile. And now I knew if I had my chains, that I could make those people dance and maybe they'd be happy for a while. A February made me shiver With the paper I deliver Bad news on the doorstep I couldn't take one more step I can't when remember so if long. I tried when I It was only a minute long well, about It seems like it's bright, <laughs> Something touched me deep inside The day the music died <laughs> Okay, so oh, for those man. who don't know, that is President Yoon of South Korea, right? He is um, at a White House State Department dinner uh, that was sort of, I don't know how they invite people for these things, but like it seemed like there were some notable Koreans there, Korean Americans there. <laughs> All the fancy Koreans went. Yeah, and <laughs> that uh, it was like, I think it was the first time that the South Korean president has been in the United States in some time, right? And so they did this big uh, blowout type of party for him. And at some point, I'm sure it was pre-planned, right? Like Joe Biden is like, hey, so I heard you like to sing. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, well, why don't you 
<laughs> built one out for us. And then he does this thing. Tammy, what was your response oh to this? Because God. when I saw this on social media and I saw it going around with incredibly high praise from people who I think very understandably have no idea who the South Korean president is, you know, um, yeah. just being like, oh, my God, this warred my heart. I even saw people being like, oh the, the funniest response Why? for me was like, hey, this is what I missed during the Trump times. You know, it's no. just some good old fashioned diplomacy and some good natured other countries respecting America and the world that I was like, oh, man. You people have no idea who this person is. Who so what, what was your response? <laughs> so these though? are like political. These are hopefully not people who. No, 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 no. These are just these are random just like, Twitter users. Jesus. But yeah, um, what, what's your. Um... I mean, I was dreading this entire visit. And we should say that like Yoon is the second, I think only the second world leader to get this level of reception in the States. The first one was Macron from France. So it's it's a pretty big deal. And it obviously is related to all kinds of stuff going on economically and with security matters. But I just find this guy very odious. And it's like very this is like, I feel like when Abe was assassinated, and all of these people who like barely know who he is was like, RIP to a great and sensitive leader, you know, and it's like, right, so I felt like, like I was going through that again. Face or something yeah, like that. Yeah. Like, oh, he was so intelligent. And, you know, and it's like, I have to say that Yoon singing was like pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. It was <laughs> but good. But it was so hard to stomach. And it just, it makes me sad and it makes me feel like it doesn't, nothing matters. Okay. So uh, <laughs> for the listeners who don't know, I asked you, I'd made you do some homework before the show. What are the top three reasons why uh, people should not really, you know, be so easily won over by this guy? Like, should what are his? Th- what, yeah, what's his, uh, <laughs> his top three? What's the top three worst qualities about him? So we should say that he is like a very conservative politician who is from essentially like Korea's version of the Republican Party, but it right now is in like a pretty far right position. I would say, <laughs> so first of all, it's very ironic that he came and got this level of like blind reception just because he has cracked down on labor unions like really hard. So I would say that's one. And Biden is supposed to be like this pro-labor president, right? And there's like no comment on that. He's been extremely like obsequious towards Japan, which makes me sound like a Korean nationalist. But what I mean by that is that like he in the same way that like he's aligning himself with the United States in this particular way, like he is getting really, really cozy with Japan and a lot of like previous agreements with regards to past historical events and trade could be washed away because of that. Yeah. And finally, maybe like the most obvious thing is that this guy is pretty misogynistic. His entire presidential Wait, campaign was pretty misogynistic. Like, I mean, like, I mean, it's, I mean he's, he's misogynistic, right? It's like, I mean, it's his like, entire campaign was built on basically demonizing women in society and the feminist movement and also like promising to abolish the gender ministry so it's really upsetting. And yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it's one of these things where in the view of the United States, like the Republic of Korea is like this stalwart ally and is kind of beyond reproach because it's an established democracy. And so they're like, well, the Koreans elected him. He may not be the best, but we're not going to criticize anything he does. Right, right. And also it's like, I think like the best I think if you need an American analog, which, you know, you don't always, but it is helpful for people, I think, to wrap their heads around. Yeah. He's not quite Trump in that he's not so he wasn't famous really beforehand. He was a prosecutor. Right. But it's not like he was like a TV star or anything. But I do think that, you know, sort of thinking about him almost as this DeSantis figure where he's this he's way to the right of anything that right that the party has really been doing for a long time and like it he rode cultural resentment to the elected position and the specific collective uh the specific cultural resentment he wrote was basically just like korea's feminist movement and then all these scandals that happened around uh you know like men recording women in bathrooms all these sort of high level things and he was basically the champion for you know i think what some people Fairly or unfairly, you tell me, was we're calling like an incel movement, right? That he was Korea's first incel. Yeah, president, I mean, right? his like campaign manager was more that guy. But yes, I mean, he was basically managed by that guy. And um, he has had no qualms about, you know, executing whatever he can in that regard. I mean, I think like 
It's hard to say like whether he's way, way more right wing than other people in his party previously. Like the last person from his party who was president was obviously impeached and she was pretty awful too. <laughs> but it does feel like right now what you what you're talking about, this politics of resentment is like pretty dominant in South Korea. It's a thing that's on a lot of people's minds. It's a thing that's driving like local and regional politics there. Right. And Pak can have her. She was a former president who was impeached. I mean, like, I find it very funny that, you know, ultimately what she was impeached for was her relationship with the shaman, right? Um, like, you can <laughs> yeah. make whatever larger macroeconomic argument you want, but, like, the impetus was the sh- relationship with the shaman and the fact yeah. that the shaman's daughter got into, um, oh, man, yeah. I'm blanking on the name. Yeah, you are, right? And then, and this guy also has a shaman scandal, but in terms of people's His complaints wife. about it, okay, yeah, it's so <laughs> on the nuts. list of people's complaints against him, it doesn't even crack like the top seven. Because yeah. <laughs> you know, there's like there's so they much other had a stuff million people on. marching in the in the streets over like a, a shaman before, and they're now they're just like, well, shamans have become normalized in our country. <laughs> and they're and like, it's so his wife. That we can't That's even not do him. It. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's from an mess. international perspective. I mean, what were you thinking about it? Because you're right. There hasn't been that many foreign heads of state that have come to the White House. Right. And they did roll out this huge event for this guy. Right. Like, I mean, yeah. this was a multi-day event. Um, he like I Congress. said, right. Some luminaries yeah. of not me and you, we weren't invited, but, you know, um, some luminaries <laughs> of the Korean American <laughs> diaspora were were on hand and. They queued up this like clearly made to be viral moment and it worked. You know, it was almost like karaoke soft diplomacy or something like like that, where it just like it totally erased everybody's um, like any questions that anyone had about him. Now, I don't think that that's necessarily on the Biden administration or anything like that. I mean, I think it's partially, but like, you know, I just think that people don't really with the Abe thing, the same thing was true. People don't really care about what like Asian political leaders, politics are unless they're extreme to a level where, or they're like emblematic in some sort of way. So like Modi, they would care. Right. But But then Obama was cozy with him too. I mean, it's no, no, that's what I mean. Yeah. yeah, Right. Right. But I do think people Anyone who has any interest in India will care about Modi's politics, of course, right? Since of course. Korea's conception in America right now, in addition to being ally, is just this powerhouse of cultural stuff that Culture. comes over, mm-hmm. right? Like, I think just a lot of people are watching and they're like, oh, my God, the country that made BTS also has a president who sings in this charming yeah, type of totally. And that was obviously so strategic. And I'm like, so when strategic. I heard him singing, I was like, oh, my God, this fucker has been in Anurabang for the last month. Like yeah, preparing yeah. this, you know, and yeah. Um, How many yeah. times do you think he's sung that song in, uh, you know, in various settings? I bet, like, I know, seriously, he's like six hundred. <laughs> assembling like over a under. growing number of people over a course of like fifteen <laughs> dinners. You know, I was also laughing thinking about them, like, like, like strategically picking the verse because there's that one verse where it talks about Lenin reading Marx. And like oh, yeah. <laughs> the more like left wing verses, like obviously he was avoiding those. Anyway, it was it's like yeah, yeah, and he didn't do any of the harder parts either. Vocally, he, he any- just did the yeah. beginning, which <laughs> is hilarious. just like four notes over and over again. But yeah, he um, <laughs> I don't know. True. I was really I was I got mad about it. Not really mad, but I was just like yeah, I was kind of mad in that. Um, I think that. It was mostly just Biden's kind of, hey, whoa, check this out. You know, he can sing. And then something about him being good at it also made me even madder where I just thought, (laughs) okay, like if you're Korean American (laughs) and you don't know that much about Korean politics, which is a lot of Korean Americans, you know? Yeah. um, You're going to watch this and you're going to be like, I remember when my dad did this. Totally. Yesterday by, you know. (laughs) Exactly. <laughs> and you're going to really I like this that guy. Remember that time at church? <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Do you remember the praise choir? Yeah. And, then, exactly. and then all these. And then it, it totally worked. You know, like the only totally people who worked. are complaining about this. Right. 
we are the only two people who are complaining about this, you know, and I feel I'm very aware of that where I'm just like, I can't believe we're going to be like people who are like, oh, we're shitting on President Pierce. Oh, my God. It's just like, like is that my role like, now? You know, I'm I know. just the guy who complains about it. Yeah, it's like us and like TK, maybe. It's you like know, us and like I don't even five, know if he was. Yeah, like ask a Korean <laughs> yeah, and like five Korean communists. Who are scattered around the metropolitan areas of the United States. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're like us, it's us, TK, and four students at the University of Chicago. And like maybe one, you know, that's about it. Uh, everybody else is totally fine with this. But you know, it's okay. That's why you have podcasts and stuff like that. Um, is there anything we should actually take away from this other than disappointment and being annoying? <laughs> <laughs> The top two takeaways. I think like the main objective of this visit was to shore up the semiconductor relationship and to signal stuff towards China and North Korea. So they talked about, you know, nuclear stuff, but the Washington Declaration that they signed doesn't really change policy that much. I mean, it emphasizes the U.S.'s like nuclear arsenal, et cetera, in very like scary ways that North Korea has already responded to. Um And then, but I think, like, did you follow how South Korea has been really mad about the Inflation Reduction Act? It, like, put possible tariffs on South Korean electric vehicles. So that was also part of this conversation. Yeah. Um, Protectionism to help Elon Musk. (laughs) Exactly. So that was a whole thing that um, I think they were hoping to discuss. Um, And then finally, I think, like, just with regards to the, the China question, like, the next White House guest today on May Day is Duterte. <laughs> no. Oh, sorry, excuse me, is Marcos. Marcos. Oh, 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 okay. I was going to say, new... I was like, what? He's not... <laughs> yeah, sorry. sorry. <laughs> yeah. I'm like confusing them for some obvious reasons. Anyway, so the new president, uh, Marcos, is at the White House today. So clearly, like, Biden is trying to do this kind of, like, Asia pivot thing that Obama had, like, potentially started. Um Yeah to make clear that the U.S. is going to be militarily present and is going to, um, yeah, ward off China to the extent possible. Yeah, I mean, I guess, like, if Asia didn't have a lot of right wing, <laughs> maybe it'd be easier, right? But, um, yeah, I don't know. I just, I, I don't, I don't have any take. All right, well, let's, let's change subjects here a little bit, right? Um we just had like a raft of technical problems. It's not that we wanted to stop talking about the Korean <laughs> visit, but I literally don't remember what we were talking about. But I think we're back, and I think this is going to be fine. Um, hopefully you hear this at some point. But uh, the second thing I wanted to talk about today, it's something that I sort of made me annoyed at some point, was um, like, did you follow this controversy around the American prospect? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I didn't see anything until I saw Dave Dayan's apology note. So I had to like rewind and try to figure out what had happened. But So is maybe Dave, start me from the beginning. Yeah. Is Dave Dayan someone that you're familiar with? Um, yeah, I love his reporting. Um, he's like one of the very good, solid reporters on like political economy, on the administrative state. Um, I really appreciate the prospect, even though I don't always agree with them. Right. So the prospect, let's just start with what the prospect is. The prospect is like yeah. a, it's like a progressive journal. I don't know how else to put it. Right. And it's one of these Robert journals. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. It's, and uh, what's his name? My neighbor here in Berkeley, Robert Reich, I think was involved with it too. Right. And, um, and it's one of these journals that exists in the DC world where they basically all have the same name and you can't really tell which one is conservative and which one is not, right? Because they're all like the American something, right? Um, and uh, Or like the National X. And uh, yeah. the, the, this is pretty progressive and it's hosted a lot of great writers. I think, uh, you know, everyone from Jamal Bowie to Ezra Klein, Matt Iglesias, very famous writers have mm-hmm. kind of gone through there and, you know, sort of figured out their politics as within this institution. And now it's run by Dave Dayan. And um, it's supposed to be the same thing, right? I think it's for young people. They have uh, fellowships. They have uh, writing. Yeah, they have writing fellows that come in. They have staffers. The staffers, I think, tend to be pretty young. And it's yeah. a place, you know, that is supposed to be 
like a, I don't even, a vanguard is too strong of a word, but it is supposed to be sort of the pulse of what the progressive politics are. Is that, do you think that's yeah, a fair way to put right. it? It's like, I always think of it as kind of slate, but DC. Yeah. DC slate. Is slate progressive? I, don't know if that makes I, guess, I guess it is. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, it's not really something that was really on my radar before. I will be honest because I don't like I don't really pay that much attention to media in these spaces. It was, at least it's not much. I like it's not like I I just don't have this long history of being interested in media at that granular of a level. Just because I didn't really work in media during my twenties and I didn't have a. I didn't have a space where it was like, oh, I'm a young writer and I have these ideas I want to report. So this is a place that I can like hone my <laughs> skills. You know, I just spent. Yeah. Like, I like was nowhere. Um, and so <laughs> I wasn't that aware of it. But, you know, like there was the controversy in question was uh, you know, two other young writers, um, Lee Harris and uh, Luke Goldstein are they are both quite young i think luke goldstein is a fellow i looked it up on the internet and the fellows like as of two years ago make thirty eight thousand dollars a year right so you can imagine it's sort of like an internship more than anything else at that at that level lee harris is a staffer and has written a lot about labor and climate and they Mm -hmm. wrote this piece about tucker and i think this will be a good way for us to talk about tucker overall but they wrote this piece when tucker was whatever, right? When a show is canceled, I think is the best way to put it. Cause I think he's still a Fox <laughs> yeah. employee technically. Um, and they kind of took what is, I would just say for lack of a better term, like a Greenwaldian approach to how they were thinking about it. Right. Like this is sort of the great Glenn Greenwald argument, which is that Tucker Carlson, you can say whatever you want about the racism, the white, you know, the great replacement theory stuff, et cetera, et cetera, that he happens to also be the one, voice in cable news on a national level who gives some sort of populist ideas around big tech, big pharma, corporate America. Now, I don't know if that's necessarily true, you know, like I think, I think that, it, yeah, that's part of this issue here. The characterization of that, like, right, right. Chris Hayes, I think probably does it the most on that level. If you want yeah. to be talking about that type of stuff. But I think it's this idea from the left, and I look. Sometimes I find myself somewhat sympathetic to this idea, which is that <laughs> I know you do. There is not that the critique of corporate America, the critique of big tech, of big pharma, is always sort of blocked by Democrats and Democrat lobby positions and Democrat donors. Right? That we never go far enough. We never really criticize any of it. We just kind of gesture at it, and then we have these fall guys like Martin Shkreli, right, which makes everyone think, oh, wow, you know, Hillary Clinton, et cetera, et cetera, getting really tough on, remember, like, how much, like, hey, Hillary Clinton made about Martin Shkreli, right? And, like, in the end, like, Martin Shkreli didn't really do anything that people in pharma don't already do, you know? He wasn't, like, the per- first person who right. did anything like this. He was just the trolliest about it. He's just gross, yeah. Right, and then he goes to jail, and everyone's like, you know, being like, yeah, we won, you know, like we got it. Like we're standing up. It's like, it's bullshit, right? Like you're not standing up to anything. You just like got this Albanian dude who nobody likes. I've never heard him described as an Albanian. Well, like I have all these theories about Shkreli and, you know, I don't know if they're good for the air, but I just think that like at some level he was an easy target because he wasn't like a iBanker guy who went to, you know, Groton or Chode or whatever, or Deerfield. He wasn't like, you know, from like a background that was easily identifiable or had a lot of, he's just like his, I think his parents were janitors or something like that. And that he, you know, went, I think he went to Stuyvesant or something like that. And then he ended up, you know, where he was as this kind of despicable guy. But that's generally how Democrats deal with this stuff, right? Like they just single out one person and then they kind of do a witch right. trial. And the then, underlying yeah. policies are right. obviously theirs. Yeah. Right, right. And it, like they did that with nursing homes, for example, but they didn't even have a Martin Shkreli of nursing homes. They just, <laughs> yeah, they just, they just roll over, right? And, um, and I think that for some people, that Tucker, despite all the bad racism and stuff, at least would occasionally come out and say some stuff that was really critical of that type of um, industry and and 
and you know, like, and like his sincerity about it can be debated. And I think that it's very valid to question his sincerity. But I think for the people who make this type of Greenwaldian argument, that what they're saying is that there is some value in at least having this stuff said on Fox News, you know, on the most watched news, uh, primetime news show mm-hmm. that there's some value in having this very famous guy at least say these types of arguments. And then their question in the piece was, well, why does nobody else say this stuff without all the racism, right? I think they called it nativism, but like, um, and, you know, for this argument, they were really sort of raked across the coals on the internet. Like, I don't, like, I know that people are, that the rule, that the thing in these types of instances is to minimize and just say like, well, they were just given criticism. Like, let's just be clear about what happened, right? Like, this is a writing fellow who is like a, basically an intern and a young reporter who in any other instance on the left or on, or even in progressive circles, whatever, Democrats, center left, whatever you want to say would be very protected, right? People would always point out, hey, these are young people and you should be kind to them and people can make mistakes. And like, there is none of that sort of empathy or even like leeway given, right? It was like, people jumped immediately to the most catastrophic version of this argument, which is like, the American prospect is smuggling in fascist ideas. And I'm just like, you guys gotta be fucking kidding me. Yeah, yeah, that's why I got so annoyed by this. Although um, I think and, you're maybe being too generous towards people previously. I think people are always happy to throw random young journalists under the bus, just not you. <laughs> I think it's what is that? Pretty mean? brutal out there. <laughs> yeah, that is true. I mean, uh, do you remember like a couple months ago, there was like an NYU student who wrote a piece about traveling to Italy or something like that, and everyone was like making fun of her? And I was like, no. I was like, oh, I was no. like this, she, I was like, she's 20 years old. Like, what the fuck <laughs> is wrong with you people? Like, you know, just leave her alone. Yeah, she wrote like a tacky troll piece that like she's probably regrets and is going to regret the rest of her life. But like, <laughs> why are you piling on this person? Like, you know, I, I don't want to be like ageist or whatever, like, or, you know, just sort of be patronizing. But I do think when people are very young and they're at the beginning of their career, they have absolutely no recourse and they have no real like uh, built up cushion of like, I'll be fine because I have this track record and I have my career. The goodwill of the readers or whatever. Do you, but it seems like there's two things here though. Like you are obviously, I think I appreciate that you're being protective of these young people and are maybe mad at the prospect for basically throwing them under the bus. But like, do you also think that there's something to their argument about Tucker? Because what I see from the critique is basically people saying, okay, sure, he occasionally says populist things that might like be agree, you know, have people who agree on the left, but it's completely opportunistic. It has, it's actually not connected to any like ideological program. And he's also like a sexual harasser and a racist and all this stuff. And none of that is kind of factored into this praise. So like, do you think that that is a reasonable critique or do you think that we're not giving actually their argument like a fair enough shake? Well, I think they could have written, like, I, I have two thoughts about it. The first is I do think that they probably could have been a little bit more harsh on Tucker, right? Like they could have noted some of this stuff. Now in their defense, and this is what I actually really think, which is that like, why, you know, like this is a progressive journal. We should be basically, Mm -hmm. it's a one place where you can basically just be like, yeah, we all agree Tucker sucks, you know? Right. The assumption of the reader. Yeah. Right. And so like, I find myself as a writer and I'm talking about this stylistically I find myself deeply annoyed at times by the fact that I feel that 40% of my brain while writing something since I've gotten in the take game is basically not 40%, let's say 12%, 15%. It's spent <laughs> writing these totally needless and kind of silly and, you know, honestly inartful little disclaimers about everything, like, to be sure, you know? Right. Or, like, it should be said. (laughs) And I fucking hate it, you know? Like, I sit there, and I know I have to write it. I know I have to, like, see, do it because I have to signal to people, hey, I'm not one of the bad ones, you know? Like, I think all this stuff is bad. And, like, why do I have to signal that stuff, you know? Um, Why can't we have a talk about the specific thing without me worrying about, getting the type of response that these two did online, right? And where, like, the editor, the... Look, I don't know him at all, and I don't... I don't. I really don't want to, like, make this about him. 
But like his response was like the definition of like muling, you know? Yeah. It was like so like apologetic and like kind of like it turned my stomach in some ways where I was just like, dude, you just threw these two kids under the bus and like you're doing this mea culpa and you don't even really explain why. Right. You I just was going to say this... it's really unclear. Right. Right. He gives these like platitudes like we didn't. Okay, so like just reading from it. Right. He's like this piece didn't quite get there. Right. Like that was one of the things he said. Mm-hmm. I don't think we quite got there with the story. And he said, um, you know, we do need to, like, explore the context behind all this stuff. And he's basically just capitulating to, like, what people who were mad about it online were saying, right? And he named them in the piece, and he basically said, like, uh, I have a responsibility to the readers, and I'll work back to get your trust. And I was like, bro, like, you got to stop this, right? Like, first of all, the chicken is, I don't know what the actual idiom is, but like, you know, the chicken has flown the coop. Is that what it is? Yeah. (laughs) Or something like that. Yeah. I know. It's Um, like, imagine your editor just doing this to you, right? Oh my God. I would quit. Even at our age and like, it would just be so hurtful. And right. I would, I mean, I would just resign like within, like, I know that people are like, oh, he's talking tough. I've quit a lot of jobs in media, you know, like I, (laughs) (laughs) um i would resign on the spot and like i have this policy where i don't blow people up who i used to work with like i don't speak out of class yeah publicly but man i would talk behind the scenes (laughs) (laughs) call everyone you know for an off the record conversation (laughs) i wouldn't do that i wouldn't call i wouldn't talk i don't talk to reporters listen but i would you know like everyone who would listen, I would just complain about it but for a year. But all your friends are reporters. <laughs> I know. I would complain about it for a year. And I think I would be correct, too, because, like, this was throwing them under the bus. I think that people who say, oh, maybe he took responsibility, like, f- bullshit. You know, this is him throwing them under the bus and saying, like, they they wrote this thing. I should have been better. But they, sh-, you know, basically saying they shouldn't yeah. have read it, wrote it. And they don't have, like, they wrote it badly. And they wrote it in a way that pissed everyone off. Now... I thought that the, they, there was a response in the American Prospect from um, Harold Meyerson and Tisha Mavaram, who is a friend of the show. And I found, you know, I actually agree with their response, and I thought it was a great rebuttal. Like, I don't understand why the American Prospect didn't just print their rebuttal, right? That's like, why so, do oh, this? I didn't see that. That's interesting. Yeah, because I love Harold Meyerson. He, he is one of the old timers at the Prospect, right. I should say. Um, that's interesting. Yeah, I guess like I'm thinking more about what you said about it being the prospect and they're they're assuming that it's prospect readers who are reading this. Like, what do you think would have happened if this had appeared in Jacobin? Oh, I don't know. Probably this. I think it probably would have been a little bit better, but people would have been mad, but they wouldn't have been like, we're disappointed in the pro in Jacobin. Yeah, Jacobin has a longer history of that type of trolling. Or that type of argument (laughs) or that type, you know, I think what we would just call like a general class reductionist. Totally. Type of argument. And this kind of like contrarian, like we got the libs thing too, I think. Right. And like the yeah. general subtext to it is like maybe we shouldn't only talk about racism, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and right. we can excuse a little bit of racism for like a, you know, like a po- more class populist type of position. And <laughs> I understand why that makes people really upset. And I don't agree with it, by the way, even though I think I'm much more on the class reductionist spectrum than. Right. We know Most Jay. people in America. Th- <laughs> right. Well, I, you should know listening also, to this podcast. It's like, <laughs> I, I think don't that's why people myself. are on this, listening to this podcast. Um, but I, <laughs> that's why our listenership has plateaued for a year. <laughs> <laughs> but it was also weird because in the beginning of the piece, they were like, oh, yeah, we know that Tucker Carlson has also been accused of like sexual harassment. But here we go. So it was both like reductive right. of the race question, but also like gender relations in the workplace. I don't know. I mean, it. it I think it was a. I think it was somewhat unfortunate. I definitely think it could have been more sensitive. But yeah, I think what you're saying is interesting. I mean, I haven't watched Tucker the way you've watched Tucker, and I did wonder whether they were. I don't know. Like, it does he in fact make these sorts of like anti-corporatist yeah, arguments enough yeah. where it's like significant? Because if he's just well, doing it like the scattered time when it you know makes someone look bad who he hates, I just don't really think that's creditable. Right. I mean, look, people on the left, their entire relationship with Tucker Carlson comes from clips that they see on social media. Right. right? Yeah. Now, having me, that's like- <laughs> right. Having 
I watched, I recorded his monologue, or I record his show every day. I did. And I listened to a lot of his monologues. And, you know, the show itself is super boring. It's just him interviewing some person. But the monologue is supposedly, is kind of where he's at, right? And Mm -hmm. I think the critique of the piece is correct. Like, I don't, it's not something he talks about all the time, right? It's like, if he does talk about it, then it's generally clipped by somebody who works for Jacobin and, you know, pointed to big (laughs) C. (laughs) So you probably saw those moments too. Um, But if we interrogate it at the level of like, it's sincerity, Right. If we just say he doesn't really mean it, um, he's just sort of masquerading a class position to smuggle in white nationalism and the great replacement theory and stuff yeah. like that. It's like that's an mm-hmm. that's a that's a conversation that's worth having. And I would probably find myself more on that side than others. The other side, which is that he really means it and it's important he's saying it. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. But I think that the response from people who believe in this type of argument is that, like, well, at least he's saying it. And who really cares about the sincerity of it? Do you believe the sincerity of what any politician says or any TV figure says? Like, why does he get this level of interrogation? And does that level of interrogation actually matter? Right. Or are you just making stuff up so that, like, this piece doesn't have to exist anymore so we don't have to have this conversation? Right. And at that level, I feel like once you're debating it at that level, you've basically admitted that the piece should exist because you're having a substantive and interesting argument about Tucker Carlson (laughs) that's inspired by this piece. And so Mm -hmm. to say that the like, the problem I have is not people getting mad at the piece or criticizing the piece. The part I was mad about was people calling for the piece that they're disappointed in the prospect that the piece existed. You know, like uh, basically saying like catastrophizing this and saying like, oh, the prospect is over. And then, you know, more than and like all that I can tolerate. Like, I think it's like I think it's stupid, but like I just find it like I I find it tolerable. Like I understand why people get mad. I don't do this thing where like I get really caught up in media stuff. And like, I, I don't know. I just find it like weird when people are like, oh, this is like X is like most people don't read most people don't care about the news. You know, most people don't follow politics on this granular yeah. level. And so once you catastrophize it and say that it will lead to a certain type of political outcome or some type of real world outcome, like I always roll my eyes. I'm always going to be skeptical of it because like <laughs> Tucker had a huge show. It was 3 million people a night. That's one out of 100 people in America watch this thing, you know. No, but like I would imagine that the majority of Americans don't know who Tucker Carlson is, right? And so, like you can say, like, oh, but it influences the elite and influences culture. Be like, but culture is totally siloed within itself now, right? And like it kind of doesn't matter. Like Trump really matters. Tucker doesn't really matter compared to Trump. People arguing that Tucker like matters on the level of Trump, I think, are delusional and like are too online. And so it, I got really annoyed at the catastrophic part of it. But even that I can tolerate because, like, I understand why people make those arguments because they work well online. But, like, the <laughs> day in apology was where it just all lost me, you know? Like, the capitulation, the kind of, like, struggle session-y, like, oh, you know, like, I really messed up. Like, who is that for? Like, who does that satisfy, And, like, we can't really, like, I just think it's really bad for journals, and I think it's especially bad for a journal like The Prospect, which is a place where people try out different arguments, and, you know, you see what happens with it, right? Like, that's how how you... Well, I think, though, that apology reveals, like, the state of the media and, like, the mistrust on both sides in the sense of we're... We were we were talking about this fact that like, okay, these people are potentially writing to an audience that they assume will have like a baseline understanding of Tucker Carlson and his flaws. Right. But the thing is, like, they're not like because I think like the way that these sorts of things circulate just through links and they're so scattershot, like there actually is no community anymore of like American prospect readers. And I think that's like what David Dayan is like potentially responding to this thing of like trust like actually we don't have trust because none of you none of you know us and so this is the first time you're hearing about who the prospect is and so i mean in that sense like i understand why he's having to address it i think the way that he addressed it seems very cowardly and also betraying of his employees which is pretty awful um i i freelanced a little bit for the prospect like 10 years ago and at the time like gabe arana was one of the junior editors that's who i worked with there and he i think now is running the texas observer observer so they have all of these people who've like you know, are trying to contribute to left media. I mean, I, I found it interesting that Jamel Bowie, who used to work at the Prospect, was one of the people yelling at the Prospect over this. Right. 
And I don't know exactly what that means. Again, I think that like it would be nice if there was a thing of that we could call like a community of readers of the prospect or a community of readers of the nation or Jacobin or whatever, even like the New Yorker that there was like, I don't know that there was some kind of like baseline trust. Um, but I just like, yeah, I don't think that exists. I think like also one of the things I was thinking and is a message in this, basically an editorial that these two journalists wrote is this idea of like trying not to, to repeat the mistakes that we know we all made, like when Trump got elected, which is to not, to try not to understand why people who we don't like are popular, you know? And so I, I, I did admire that part of it, which is just, yeah. Why does this guy have hundreds of millions of views and, you know, um, and what, what do we have like on the left to learn about that, you know? And so I, I do think that that is useful. And I think, um, I don't know if there's a way that we can continue that sort of inquiry without just getting canceled online. I, I feel very scared of Twitter, so I don't go on there anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You should be scared of Twitter. <laughs> um, <laughs> you went through a few rough, like, I don't know. Like I just like, <laughs> I I don't I find that I, well what do you think about the writing part about it? Do you do that thing where you just kind of like are always yeah, I hedging think that's a little bit? The disclaimers. Yeah, like I just find <laughs> that like that like every pl- piece of political writing that is supposed to be progressive, and this is why I kind of appreciate the class reductionists in some way because they don't really do that right, and they are yeah. a little bit more trolly. But there's like this almost this this like litany that you have to go through of disclaimers before you make any type of provocative argument. Right. And it could be honestly that like for me that I feel this way more, more pressure just because, you know, the last two places I've written are places that people do fixate a lot on, you know, and that you do get like, there's a lot of attention placed on them. And and they're not like straightforwardly leftist places, right? So you, I think like that's why you have had to do it. And that actually makes sense to me because you do need to communicate some sort of orientation to your readers. Right. But it's not the orientation of the argument. It is like the orientation of me as a social media personality. And like that sucks. Cause like, I feel like that's like inevitable. Do you think there's a way to get around that? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I guess if you, if you had a direct newsletter, like if you wrote all your stuff only on Substack, I don't think you would need to do it. Right. Well, let's say, you know, when I did do my newsletter at the Times, I will say yeah. that I felt a little bit more comfortable. First of all, you know, I was given an immense amount of freedom. Right. And um, yeah. and I will always give the Times credit for that because uh, it was extremely liberating and uh, I could like there was never really arguments about what I was writing. You know, it was just, I was like, I'm going to do this. And they'd say, okay. Mm-hmm. And over time, because you, I heard back from so many of the readers that I sort right. of got the confidence that people were actually reading it, you know, and that I could refer back to old ones and stuff like that. I wouldn't have to reintroduce myself every single time. And that's a little bit different. Cause I think that that's like in the same way that we had expectations of like, you know, like Marine Dowd, or we have expectations of David right. Brooks. We have expectations yeah. of, Krugman and that those foreground whatever they're saying right like so like you know David Brooks can write about how much he loves rap music or he can write like you know the the case for like young socialists or something like that these are some of the pieces that he's written and people still (laughs) understand that he's coming from this place where he used to be in the new left and then he made a heart you know he made a rightward turn work for Reagan whatever right like you you under you know his history because like that's the job of the columnist over time yeah. But, like, I don't think that that's what 99% of writing on the internet is, right? We don't expect any type of familiarity with who the Definitely. author is unless they're Every very time famous. is a new thing. Yeah. Right. And so then you do have to foreground everything. And the weird part about it to me is that, like, we are foregrounding things without being famous. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> like... It would really make sense. I, I I think I'm right on the like I think, you know, if I'm being very honest about myself, I think like I'm on the cusp of this stuff where like I do think that some of the stuff maybe I have enough of a oh reputation God, where Jay. some people of reading it will understand who I am, but the majority of people won't, right? But enough people might understand where like maybe That's I can get funny. away with a thing or two. Oh but like God. for the most part what we're doing is we're doing this dance so that people won't look up our Twitter and then cancel us, you 
you know? No, seriously. That's like fucked up. Like, I did not know, like, Luke Lee Harris and Luke Goldstein, like, no offense to them, right? I've actually read a lot of their work since then, and I think that they're both very talented and very good, right? Like, uh, Lee Harris and Luke, I had no idea who those two were, you know? Like, um... So now, and I don't think that 99% of the people who were mad about this had ever heard of either of them, right? And so, like, are we really at this point where you're just like, oh, nobody, like, I'm just a writer, I'm somebody who writes, I'm young, or, or maybe I'm older, and I'm not somebody who's, like, obsessed with building a brand or something like that, and that I have to basically do all this stuff, not to protect my reputation as it exists, but to, to, but to only defend against people trying to figure out who I am because they're mad at me and they want to cancel me, Right. Like, I think that's a terrible place for writing. It makes me extremely annoyed. Well, and do like, you also think know. it has to do with their race as white people? I don't know. I think about that sometimes. Like, am I is like, am I less cancelable because I'm not white? And then I think I mean, probably I a, li- think a little probably, bit. Although now I feel like yeah. I'm. <laughs> I sound like a freaking reactionary. But <laughs> you I don't know. I mean, yeah. I'm sure people were googling Lee Harris and Luke Goldstein and being like, oh, they're these white people, and therefore they're not understanding like the effect of Tucker Carlson on like people. Oh, of color. maybe like, that's part of it. So I do think I that that's know. part of this thing too, of like this kind of like disclaimer culture and that culture of fear of just like, if you're not in the right identity category to make a particular kind of provocative argument, I think you you are at risk and it is difficult right now. I don't know. I reviewed Cedric Johnson's book for The New Yorker, you know, and people were really mad at Cedric Johnson for making like basic class reduction or class arguments, yeah. right? Like in the tradition of Adolf Reed Including or Barbara Friends Fields. Yeah. <laughs> right. And they got mad at him. But, and, you know, these are white people getting mad at a black author. No, you know? I know. Like, I, yeah. I think, I think, although I, I do think, think like, Yes, of course it happens. But I do think like, especially with like more quick take journalism and stuff, it's easier to write people off. Like also, I mean, somebody like him, he has a, a job and, you know, he he has he's like an academic. Right, right. That doesn't mean he's he's immune to criticism, but he can handle it in a way that will not potentially like ruin his career, probably. <laughs> Right. I don't know. I think the whites have been emboldened <laughs> to, to, to not respect the identity category thing so much while, while canceling people. You know, I was surprised by, it. you know, like there are all these like people in my mentions being like this idiot. Well, the, I mean, half of them thought I had written the book, and then the other half of them, um, you know, I like, they're just mad about stuff. And like, there's part of me was like, I don't want to go back to like 2016 or 2008 you know, 12 or something like that when all that mattered online was standpoint epistemology. Right. And that, um, <laughs> but like, let's preserve a little bit of it because you're annoying the shit out of me. Right <laughs> like, I'm, like, uh, but anyway, my last point in all of this is basically that I think that it, it is the job of an editor to make sure that there is an environment where their writers feel like they can make provocative arguments without, like a little flurry of tweets sending their editor like down a rabbit hole and into a full-on panic. Those are, I'm sorry, I'm mixing metaphors there, but into like a full-on <laughs> panic where he starts flailing around and says like, oh no, what am I going to do? You know, like, uh, like, and maybe, and you know, like the, the real lesson of the story could have been that maybe it was a donor or something like that. Maybe a donor got mad or something like that, right? Like, I could see that, right? Like, a lot of yeah. these places are foundation or donor-driven. It's a 501c. It's not – that's a nonprofit, right? That um, yeah, there are people who could be – there are people I who could be – I was thinking about that, too, yeah. or the board. I also think, like, the other situation in which the prospect – has been criticized in the recent past, including by me and Andy and friends of the pod, is around their commentary on China, particularly Robert Kuttner's, who has right. um, yeah, written a lot about how China really is a threat and we need to address it, et cetera, et cetera, in a way that I think people have felt could be borderline racist or you know xenophobic or inflammatory in particular ways. And so I, that is also, I think, part of this background that David Dayan is working against in issuing this apology did they apologize for like whatever xenophobia or whatever no no right right well but you know they know they've been criticized around it so right i i just find like i don't know i think the larger framing of all of this is just like i think that there is this is not an original point to make i wonder how you feel about it now that you've been you know had your own scuffles online (laughs) <laughs> um, 
it's it's interesting. People don't really like it's is the the one thing I've always been interested in is the lifespan of some of these terms, right? Like so, social justice warrior, right? It's something that nobody uses anymore, right? I think woke is actually starting to cycle out. But oh, cancel yeah. culture is something that's totally cycled out and like people might not realize it, but like people don't really talk about it anymore, right? Like it's not really a fixation anymore. At least they, I think they're fixated on the idea, but they don't use the term cancel culture in the way that they did even a year ago, right? Like it's oh, not okay. really as ubiquitous as it was before. Now, you know, like I think that the idea like, oh, well, they didn't lose, like these two didn't lose their jobs, you know, um, that, uh, that Dan, that Dave no, Dan said, said that he was huge fan. Uh, he tweeted, like, I love both of them and they're great reporters and I support oh, them. Okay. He tweeted that, like, the next day after his repository. He's like, I don't know, dude, you know? <laughs> like, like, I don't know what their relationship with him is and it could be it's totally fine and I imagine that maybe it is, you know? But, like, I don't know if the reality of that is really all that interesting given, like, what the actual dynamics of it is, right? Like, it might be he's, like, a mansion, they like him or whatever, but, like, he still threw them under the bus, right? And I just think at some level, like, we still have this problem where a provocative type of argument is catastrophized, or I keep saying that word, but it is sort of put, put in the worst possible light. Right. It is mm-hmm. the sort of mm-hmm. anger about it is ratcheted up to 11. That clear comments like, hey, Tucker Carlson is a nativist, right, are ignored. And that there is a psychologizing that's done about both the writers and the publication that published it, where it just feels deranged at some level. Right. And like people do this with the New York times all the time. They like try and like psychologize what the New York times is doing. And they say the New York times thinks X. Right. And that's why they're doing this. It's like the New York times is like 2000 reporters. Yeah. And like a bunch I, of editors doing it's random way more shit. Chaotic. Right. Exactly. They don't yeah. have a ideology except the one that is built into the newsroom because of the people who work in that newsroom, but they do not have a planning session where they say, this right. is going to be our take on this thing, yeah, you know? know. And like, you can make a great class or educational, like, you know, privilege argument about those people and they would listen to it, I think, you know, unless they're like totally delusional. <laughs> but like, when you say you had a planning meeting to plan this type of coverage and you use these specific combinations of words, on purpose and like an AV headline type of thing, then like, that's just not true. That's not how it works. And like, I just think that like, like they got to stop this type of stuff. It (laughs) sucks. It makes writers really gun shy. It makes us all worse writers. And like anyone who says otherwise is, I think it's like a bad writer or is lying, you know? And like a lot of the people who make these arguments are good writers. So I don't think they're all bad writers, but I think like they're, they're, they, for some reason, maybe it doesn't like bother them as much to write all these stupid disclaimers, but like it really bothers me. I think it bothers a lot of writers. And I think that if you talk to people quietly or like in private, that they'll, you know, they'll just say, yeah, I spend a lot of time worrying about getting canceled. I spend a lot of time worrying about getting yelled at. And so I just protect every single argument with all this stuff and it does deaden it. I don't know. I find myself bored writing, reading almost all political writing these days because of that. Mm. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, I know. I definitely think it's I, it's interesting what you say about cancel culture because I, I feel like I've been talking about it more. I mean, maybe it's because I'm off Twitter. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't canceled, but like, you know, I, I feel like I see it in my friends more. So I think it's been more on my mind recently. Um, I think the political moment we're in is sort of interesting because it seems like the middle, I guess like liberals are doing better than before. And this kind of, I don't know, crisis moment around our democracy is maybe fading a little bit. And yet this kind of anxiety is quite high and it seems like there's still pressure to feel like we're in a crisis. And so I think like when these sorts of things come up and it is not kind of ringing this alarm bell of like, sure, you know, Biden's in power and the Dems seem to be doing well, but like Trump and his people are still like at the door, like going to knock it down. It's, yeah, I think the critiques just come very, very fast. And so I think, and right. I wonder if that's part of the thing that's boring you because it's sort of like this disconnect between potentially like our reality now and, you know, what we imagine it to continue being. 
Right. I think that's very perceptive. And um, I think you're right at some level or at a huge level, which is like, that's why the whole Tucker discourse is so annoying to me because like Tucker is not as important as Donald Trump. He's not as important as, you know, Ron DeSantis. He's not as important. Like he's this idea that like, because you see clips of him on your Twitter feed that he's the most successful demagogue and that he's converting all these people. Like, like, I don't know, you know, like I just like have a hard time making those links. Like, I think that we live in a violent racist country and, um, that type of stuff is going to take on a lot of, uh, expressions. But if what you're trying to do is go through, like, I don't know, the manifestos of shooters who massacre people and match up words with something that somebody said on a monologue. You have no evidence whether or not this person watched the show or not. And that then you just say, oh, the real problem is this television show. Then, like, you've kind of missed, you're, you're just doing basic, like, academic, like, graduate school work where you're just kind of mining texts for massive significance <laughs> that might not be there. And, I, yeah, I find it really annoying. Like, I think that uh, I think that Tucker's bad. I don't like Tucker Carlson, and I think that Tucker Carlson is a racist, and I think um, he definitely pushed the Great Replacement Theory on television, and I don't know if they had hired other hosts that if that person would have, right? Like, Meg, yes, I agree, Megan Kelly probably wouldn't have done that, you know? Now, to the degree where it moves the country's politics in one direction or another, like, I just find it, very specious to say that he has like some gigantic, gigantic impact that is worth days and days of coverage, but also like this kind of like, we should not say this type of attitude within progressive circles, right? Like that we have to basically bring out all the guns and we have to make them all kneel. Um, And that's what happened here. And, you know, I don't know. I just found it super annoying and uh, I wish people wouldn't do it because I don't think it's a, proportional and I don't think it's fair to like two young writers um and if you don't give a shit about that then you know and you say oh but they (laughs) should learn responsibility and accountability it's like you don't really care about responsibility and accountability you don't know these people you know (laughs) um like I don't believe that you think oh well you know this is just the consequences for action like you don't believe that you're just like you enjoy making them capitulate and like that's what it is, you know. And I don't know. I just I'm I'm just having a very hard time with it. It's not like this red pilling moment, so don't worry about that. Like I've always felt this way. <laughs> I think and you've I been fairly myself, consistent in this view, <laughs> right? And I find myself extremely annoyed at my own writing recently, and so it's the combination of those two things. <laughs> We're all now <laughs> reflecting. I'm like thinking about disclaimers recently. Like, have I been doing that? <laughs> Do you do that? I don't know. I I guess like you could have avoided really, one of your cancellations that way by I feel, saying, yeah. "My disclaimer like is that your... Shiny um, is a good K-pop oh fan. <laughs> They're great, but like also, <laughs> I think you're. I think in your situation, you're thinking about having to think about it a lot more because you're doing opinion journalism and you're like, you know, you you are trying to do these takes that do provoke people, but. Yeah, you're also trying to exist in society. <laughs> yeah, it's uh if you try to make any type of counterintuitive argument, you have to basically hold everyone's hand and prove that you're not a bigot, right? Mm-hmm. And um I'm not a bigot and I just like I just <laughs> I'm like so like I don't like it on a stylistic level. And then I think it dilutes these arguments a lot. And honestly, that in the end was what I sort of almost appreciated about this piece that Lee Harris and Luke Goldstein wrote, where I was just like, yeah, they didn't apologize for it, you know? Yeah. It's cool to be a young person trying out new ideas, too. It's brave. Right, right. Yeah. That's what we should see it as. And I didn't agree. Like, look, I don't, I thought they were a bit. (laughs) Yeah, they are too credulous, but like, who cares? Like, you know, like, like we can. Like we can survive like beyond it. And I don't know. I I don't. I I, think the one thing that maybe editors could pay more attention to, especially right now, is being very on guard when younger journalists want to write opinion journalism. Because I I do. I mean, I I, while I like applaud people for trying out new ideas and like putting themselves out there, I also think because of this 
particular attention economy and the way that people are reading things and just the fact that you don't know what kind of career you're going to have. Like it can be very risky to do opinion-y stuff early on. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. It's it, like, even a just reason like you can't get a newspaper job always, after yeah, that, yeah. you know, right. stuff like that. Like it's just so right. anyway, but, but that again, I think goes to like this question of like, what is the editor's relationship to younger journalists in particular? What is their responsibility to them, you know, career wise and in the public eye? Well, I don't know if he has a responsibility to them career wise because, you know, like they're people who write for him and, you know, his job, he should have it, but it's not really his responsibility, right? To like set them up perfectly and make sure that they're all I mean, in these not different perfectly, places. Perfectly, but I just, I don't know. I mean, I don't think, I'm not saying that no 20 year old should be writing opinion journalism, like whatever. Obviously, that's also like, they're, it's, all kind of a blur right now, but I don't know. I guess I would say that I think it is the responsibility of an editor to be aware of how this kind of thing can affect somebody's career in the future. Oh yeah. That part I agree. I mean, it's just a kind thing to do. Let's just put it that way. It might not be their <laughs> yes. explicit responsibility, but okay, it is the sure, kind thing but, to do. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I, I don't even mean to have gone so long with this thing. You know, like I just, I, I find myself, uh, I think the the only last thing that I haven't said five times already that I will say is that like I think that from in terms of progressive media, right? Um, this is something that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know, like I like I just kind of think like you gotta allow for more trolley type of arguments yeah. to get any yeah. type of pick up like it's important for these pieces to have a large audience and to sometimes go viral in a way and they can't only go viral when they are getting canceled which seems to be right and that seems to be where it is like you want people like on the right to be like oh an interesting point that was made Mm -hmm. right and like if you're just embarrassed by that because somebody on Twitter is going to be like, oh, look who they're in bed with. Like, come on, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. like, don't play that game of lame. Well, I, I do wonder if Twitter finally does go away. Like if I don't know if maybe there'll be more space for people to form relationships with publications for people to like give things a chance and like actually consume them before just seeing tweets of them. I don't know. I mean, I don't know what's next in social media, but it would be nice if there was a little bit more generosity yeah that's true i think that there's like a theory that maybe that'll happen because like basically all discovery is dying right like Mm -hmm. google's dying and twitter's dying Mm -hmm. and facebook's dying and people like the traffic that used to go into publications from those types of sources is all dwindling and so now like publications basically have to sell their home pages as being Mm -hmm. like the big thing in the way that the times does right the only place that really does this is the times but more people are going to have to be like the times and be like a standalone destination and it won't just be like you know this like parade of links marching down your social media feeds yeah i think that's a very positive development i don't know if the publications will survive it but if they do then i think that's like a great thing to have happened but um yeah i i think that maybe maybe in the future it'll be that way and people will feel a little bit more like at at a home and so they Mm -hmm. won't have to they won't have to like do all the caveats all the time yeah maybe that'll happen i know that would be i remember at different points left journalists and editors imagining that kind of world for themselves like imagine if you could i don't know have some sort of bundle where you would get like the nation the new republic you know jacobin in these times and and sort of like have a subscription package where and then like you could sort of imagine this kind of great thing where they would there would sort of be de- internal debates between them and and you you would know all of the readers would come in with a certain kind of baseline of understanding or whatever maybe they would have like right-wing subscribers who would you know, try to take that as like, okay, well, this is the sort of right, right, right. left and this is what, you know, the ideas that are coming to us. So I don't, I mean, I, I think that kind of thing would be great, but I'm also this stupid, you know, broke journalist who has like 15 subscriptions. So that's like, <laughs> there's not that many people who do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think that there's, but like the people who do do that are the only people who have ever supported places like the American prospect, you know? Um, like it was, it's always people who are readers and people who are interested in politics. It's not, it's not like a big, big publication, like people magazine or us weekly or something like that. Right. It's for a very specific type of audience. Um, yeah, I don't know. I I don't know what the future holds. I know that this blue sky app is like not going to be 
it because like I've been on that thing and let me tell you, it sucks. <laughs> it's the worst. You heard it here. <laughs> I know. It's just like it's like all the people I've muted on Twitter. <laughs> Sitting wow, around being like appealing. Yeah, like, isn't this amazing? And I'm like, oh, my God, no. You know, like, this is, like, it, th- there's going to be six cancellations per minute once that thing goes up to scale. It's like, <laughs> it's like the most cancel-happy people. Um, and then, like, eight journalists who are trying to gain, you know, trying to, like, figure out, hey, what's going on here? And, oh, my like, God, what a um, nightmare. <laughs> yeah, the only thing of note that happened was that they all, like, everyone on there, like, chased Matt Iglesias off the platform by threatening to kill him you know and then there was like this big victory it was like oh great you know <laughs> you're like sending God. death threats to matt iglesias uh and and then exulting when he's like yeah i don't really like being having death threats i'm out of here and they're like we did it and i'm like this is but you know like guys <laughs> like come on <laughs> this is sucks <laughs> anyway whatever that was fast okay um all right is there anything else we should talk about We've definitely beat that topic to death, but I think that was useful. <laughs> Do you like Santa Cruz? Oh, yeah. So I'm in Santa Cruz. It's apparently really beautiful here, but I haven't left the hotel yet. But I'm going to try to take a walk on the beach a little bit later. Yeah, Happy May Day, by the way. Happy May Day. Yeah. yeah. Um, cool. All right. Well, thank you for listening to the show. Uh, for $5 a month, you can support the show at goodbye.substack.com or at patreon.com slash pod. You can email us at time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com or you can contact us on Twitter at TTSG pod. Um, what do, do we have anything coming up in the next few weeks? Oh, yeah. Tomorrow, the, you know, by the time that this episode is out, the tickets for my movie will be on sale. I'll oh, post really? some stuff on Finally. social media. Okay. Yeah, you can buy tickets to the premiere. There's three premiere nights, it's all at the East Village Theater. I don't know this what is that is. This is part of Tribeca Film Festival? Yeah, it's part of the Tribeca Film Ooh. Festival. So it's all at 12. It'll all be uh, on 12th Street, I think. East 12th Street or something like that. Um, awesome. And I think it's one of the theaters near NYU or something like that. And so I'll post a lot of stuff there. It would be great if we could see some of you there. And if you make it so that a lot of people are at the theater, then that's obviously good for me and it will make me less depressed. I think if I went there and there was like four people there and it was only four people I knew from high school or something, I would be like, oh no, what have I done? I think we'll have a big pod contingent. This is, if you guys don't know, this is for Jay's documentary on the tennis yeah, it's for my chains, documentary. And we're all really yeah. excited to see it. So. And um, hopefully yeah. we'll be having some meetups when you're in town. So May, our producer right, will send right. out info about that. Right, so keep an eye out for that. Okay, Tammy, uh, it was good talking to you. I'll talk to you soon. Yeah, talk to you. Okay, bye.